Welcome, I'm your host, Greg McEwen, and for those who are new here, I'm the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Effortless and Essentialism, and the host of this newly minted Greg McEwen podcast, where I am on a journey with you to learn how to negotiate, what really matters, when it really matters, with the people who really matter. And this really dovetails with the core idea within essentialism itself. Essentialism isn't about getting more done in less time. It's about getting only the right things done. Have you ever found yourself stretched too thin? Have you ever been busy but not productive? Do you feel like your time is constantly hijacked by other people's agenda for you? If you answered yes to any of these, the way out is the way of the essentialist. So by the end of this episode, you will be better able to eliminate the non-essentials from your life. Today, I'm going to share with you five specific things you can do right now, actionable advice for how you can be more of an essentialist. By the end of this episode, you will be better able to eliminate the non-essentials from your life. So let's get to it. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. If you want to accelerate your understanding of what I share with you today, here's how to do it. Teach the ideas in this podcast 
to someone else within the next 24 to 48 hours of listening. It will deepen your understanding. It will help you to implement the ideas faster yourself. And it will also help educate the people around you so that you're not the lone essentialist in the room. On a bright winter day, I visited my wife, Anna, in the hospital. Even in the hospital, Anna was radiant, but I also knew she was exhausted. It was the day after our precious daughter was born, healthy and happy at seven pounds, three ounces. Yet what should have been one of the happiest, most serene days of my life was actually filled with tension. Even as my beautiful new baby lay in my wife's tired arms, I was on the phone and on email, and I was feeling pressured to go to a client meeting. My colleague had written days before, Friday between one and two would be a bad time to have a baby because I need you to be at this client meeting. It was now Friday, and though I was pretty certain that the email had been written in jest, I felt pressure to attend. Instinctively, I knew what to do. It was clearly a time to be there for my wife and newborn child. So when asked whether I planned to attend the meeting, I said with all the conviction I could muster, yes. So to my shame, while my wife lay in the hospital with our hours-old baby, I went to the meeting. What was I doing there? I had said yes to please, and in doing so, I'd hurt my family, my integrity, and even the client relationship. As it turned out, exactly nothing came from that meeting, but even if it had, surely I had made a fool's bargain. In trying to keep everyone happy, I had sacrificed what matters most. On reflection, I discovered this important lesson. If you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. Priority, the very first or priorist thing. And according to Peter Drucker, it stayed singular for the next 500 years. So it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution where people started using the term priorities, pluralizing the term. And yet, what does that even mean? How can you have very, very many, very first, before all other things, things? And yet, haven't you been to a meeting yourself where somebody said with no sense of irony at all, here are my 34 priorities? So one way back... One thing you can do now is to identify what the priority is in this moment. This first practice I will simply call WIN because it's a nice acronym. What's important now? That's how to begin this journey to becoming an essentialist. Don't overthink it, but ask the question, what's important now? So number one was WIN, and number two is LESS. Many intelligent, ambitious people struggled to figure out what is the priority for them in this moment, and for a perfectly good reason, a reason I call the paradox of success. It can be summed up in four predictable phases. Phase one, when we really have clarity of purpose, it enables us to succeed at our endeavor. Phase two, when we have success, we gain a reputation as a go-to person. We become good old so-and-so who is always there when you need him. And we are presented with increased options and opportunities. Phase three, when we have increased options and opportunities, which is actually code for demands upon our time and energies, it leads to diffused efforts. We get spread thinner and thinner, which leads to phase four, we become distracted from what would otherwise be our highest level of contribution. The effect 
of our success has been to undermine the very clarity that led to success in the first place. Overstating the point in order to make it, the pursuit of success can be a catalyst for failure, especially if it leads to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And the antidote to that is the disciplined pursuit of less. What I would encourage you to do right now is to start a said no to list. That is, in addition to your to-do list, write down the things that you've actually said no to. This will have a couple of benefits to you. First, it will be empowering to discover you can say no. Many of us are novices at the idea. We just don't even say the word. We don't use it. We could, but we don't. The second is, as your list accumulates, you'll be able to evaluate whether you're pleased with that decision. Because I'm not advocating you start saying no to everyone and everything without really thinking about it. That would be a different sort of book, a book called Noism or something. But the idea of essentialism is to say yes to the essentials, but also no to the non-essentials, so that you can reinvest that time, resource, your attention, your energy to the things that really are most important. Number three is trade-off. Imagine you could go back to 1972 and invest a dollar in each company in the S&P 500. Which company would provide you the largest return on your investment by 30 years later, like 2002? Would it be GE, IBM, Intel, McDonald's, Berkshire Hathaway? The correct answer, and almost nobody ever gets the answer right, is Southwest Airlines. It's a pretty startling answer because the airline industry is notoriously bad at generating profits, yet Southwest, led by Herb Kelleher, has consistently, year after year, produced amazing financial results. Did they do it by trying to be all things to all people? Or did they do it through a disciplined pursuit of less? Rather than fly to every destination, they deliberately chose to offer only point-to-point -point flights. Instead of jacking up prices to cover the cost of meals, they decided they would serve none. Instead of assigning seats in advance, they would let people choose them as they got on the plane. Instead of upselling their passengers on glitzy first-class service, they offered only coach. These trade-offs weren't made by default, but by design. And each and every one of them was made as part of a deliberate strategy to keep costs down. Did they run the risk of alienating customers who wanted the broader range of destinations? Yes. But Kelleher and his executive team were totally clear about what the company was, a low-cost airline, and what they were not. And their trade-offs reflected as much. Kelleher explained it this way. He said, you have to look at every opportunity and say, well, no. I'm sorry, we're not going to do a thousand different things that really won't contribute much to the end results we are trying to achieve. At first, Southwest was lambasted by critics, naysayers, everybody. Yet after years, it became clear that Southwest was onto something, and competitors in the industry took notice of Southwest's soaring profits and started trying to imitate their approach. But instead of adopting Kelleher's essentialist approach, carte blanche, they instead chose a straddled strategy. 
In the simplest terms, straddling means keeping your existing strategy intact while simultaneously also trying to adopt the strategy of a competitor. And one of the most visible attempts of that at the time was Continental Airlines. They started a program called Continental Light, and in the end, it confused everybody involved so much that they set records in the airline industry for complaints per day. They lost $150 million, and they fired the CEO. The moral of the story is ignoring the reality of trade-offs is a terrible strategy for teams and, of course, for individuals as well. Trade-offs are real and they should be embraced and even celebrated because they're the essence of what great strategy are all about. One thing you can do immediately is to ask the question, what trade-off am I going to make? When you're faced with two options of what to do in this moment, don't say, I'm just going to do both. Say, which trade-off am I going to make? What do I need to say no to in order to say yes to this? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Number four is intent, or more particularly, to create an essential intent. Most teams that I have worked with, most companies and most individuals, have a challenge when it comes to creating clarity about what they want in the future. Most vision statements and mission statements and value statements are so ambiguous, even though they're meant to inspire, they often leave people none the wiser about what to actually pursue and what not to pursue. They are therefore not fit for purpose. But when I coach individuals and ask them, okay, what is essential to you to achieve over the next two to three years? If there's only one thing that you could do, what is it? I am almost always faced with a blank stare or a list of many, many different things. What would the power be if you could identify a single essential intent that could help you to navigate everything else along your journey. There is a structure that can be really useful in helping you identify an essential intent. It's the following. Verb, population, outcome, date. It's a bit like a Mad Libs exercise. Verb, what is it that you can uniquely contribute? What is it that you do better, perhaps, than anyone else? Population, who are the most important people in your life? Who are the most important customers in your business? Outcome. What is the benefit to them? What is the priority benefit to them? There may be many benefits, but what's the priority benefit? And then date. To be able to turn your intent into a specific metric, add a date by which you want to achieve it. As you start to whittle away at your essential intent, 
be careful to stop wordsmithing and start deciding. When developing statements of purpose, whether it's for your company, your team, or for yourself, there's a tendency I've noticed where people start obsessing about trivial stylistic details. Should we use this word or that word? But this makes it all too easy to slip into meaningless cliches and buzzwords that lead to vague, meaningless statements. An essential intent doesn't have to be elegantly crafted. It's the substance, not the style, that counts. So instead, ask the more essential question that will inform every future decision you will ever make. If we could be truly excellent at one thing, what would it be? An essential intent done right is one decision that makes a thousand. Number five is flow, or the genius of routine. For years before Michael Phelps won all those golds at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, he followed the same routine every race. He arrived two hours early. He stretched and loosened up according to a precise pattern. 800 mixer, 50 freestyle, 600 kicking with the kickboard, 400 pulling a boy, and more. After the warm-up, he would dry off, put on his earphones, and sit, never lie down on the massage table. From that moment, he and his coach, the rather remarkable Bob Bowman, wouldn't speak a word to each other until the race was over. At 45 minutes before the race, he would put on his race suit. At 30 minutes, he would get into the warm-up pool and do 600 to 800 meters there. With 10 minutes to go, he'd walk to the ready room. He would find a seat alone, never next to anyone. He liked to keep the seats on both sides of him clear for his things, uh, goggles on one side, towel on the other. When his race was called, he would walk to the blocks. There he would do what he always did, two stretches, first a straight leg stretch and then with a bent knee, left leg first every time. Then the right earbud would come out. When his name was called, he would take out the left earbud. He would step onto the block always from the left. He would dry the block every time. Then he would stand, flap his arms in a Phelpsian way. Phelps explains, it's just a routine, my routine. It's the routine I've gone through my whole life, and I'm not going to change it now. And that is that. But his coach, Bob Bowman, who designed this physical routine with Phelps, said that's not all. He also gave Phelps a routine for what to think about as he went to sleep. And first thing, when he woke up, he called it watching the videotape. There's no actual tape, of course. The tape was just a visualization of the perfect race in exquisite detail and slow motion. So Phelps could visualize every moment from his starting position on top of the blocks through each stroke until he emerged from the pool victorious with water dripping from his face. He didn't do the mental routine occasionally. He did it every day before he went to bed and every day when he woke up for years. When Bob wanted to challenge him in practices, he would shout, put in the videotape, and Phelps would push beyond his limits. Eventually, the mental routine was so ingrained that Bob barely had to whisper the phrase, get the videotape ready, before a race. And Phelps was always ready to hit play. When asked about the routine, Bob said, if you were to ask Michael what's going on in his head before the competition, he would say he's not really thinking about anything. He's just following the program. But that's not really right. It's more like his habits have taken over. 
When the race arrives, he's more than halfway through his plan and he's been victorious in every step. All the stretches went like he had planned. The warm-up laps were just as he visualized. His headphones are playing exactly what he expected. The actual race is just another step in a pattern that started earlier that day and has been nothing but victories. Winning is a natural extension. All of us know that Phelps won the record eight gold medals at the Beijing Olympics. But I was always fascinated by how he'd done it in a way that made it look so effortless. And of course, practice is part of it, but routine is embedded in all of that practice, in making it appear to be as effortless as it appeared. I talked to Bob Bowman just recently, and he talked me through his experience in the final race of those eight gold medals. After it was done, and he himself said it had surprised him at how effortless it had actually been. When visiting Beijing years after Phelps' breathtaking accomplishment, I couldn't help but think how Phelps and the other Olympians had all made their feats look so effortless. It's certainly a testament to the genius of the right routine. The way of the non-essentialist is to think that essentials only get done when they are forced. That execution is a matter of raw effort alone. You labor to make it happen. You push through. You even force it through. But the way of the essentialist is subtly different. The essentialist designs a routine that makes achieving what you have identified as essential the default position. My suggestion to you is to tackle your routines one by one. It would be unfortunate, a little ironic even, if you become so taken with the genius of routine that you're tempted to try to overhaul lots of routines and all at the same time. What I've learned is that if you start slow and small with routines, you can layer them on one after another in order to utterly change the results and the performance of your life. Once we master routines, things become automatic, and that's an enormous victory. Once you put the routines in place, they are gifts that keep on giving. Let's go back to the questions I asked at the beginning. Have you ever found yourself stretched too thin? Have you ever been busy but not productive? Do you feel like your time is constantly hijacked by other people's agenda? The way out is the way of the essentialist. I've covered five specific things you can do right now to become more essentialist and therefore to be able to operate at a higher point of contribution. If you have found this episode useful, please subscribe to the Greg McEwen podcast. Also my newsletter, gregmcewen.com forward slash 1MW. Read Essentialism, read Effortless, because I didn't just write them, I wrote them for you. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, 
and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.